Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on yet another sunny day here in the capital. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and today, as always, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First, we're joined by Keith Ludington Hill, Managing Director of Lawrence Gould Partnership, a firm which is regarded as the best-known name in the UK agricultural consultancy, having provided strategic, financial, and technical advice to farmers, landowners, and associated businesses since the 1960s. Keith, hello. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for coming on the program today. Uh, now, normally we'd get straight into the subject of leadership, but considering the ongoing COVID outbreak, we should start there. How has this affected your organization? Uh, well, actually, personally, it's affected me because I, I actually went down with it very early on. I'm very um, sorry to hear before, that. Be, be, before the lockdown, and um, I was quite—I was actually very ill. Um, I wasn't ill enough to go to hospital, thankfully, but uh, it's, it's a very serious um, uh, infection and not to be recommended at all to anybody. Um, I welcome anything to stop the, the spread of the uh, virus out of the UK, really. So, yes. But from the point of view of our company, uh, yes, it's it, it, uh, changed the, our dynamics of working considerably. Um, our, our service, we're a service-based company, and uh, our service is based on actually going and visiting clients and uh, around the country uh, on farm. And obviously, we haven't been able to do that Um since uh, the end of March. So it's, it's, it's changed the dynamics of how we operate considerably. Um, we, we've used, um, we've, we've used uh, video conferencing extensively with our clients. Um, some of them who haven't been able to uh, have access to internet because of the rural locations, we've had to do it via the means of mainly phone calls and, uh, and email correspondence uh, to provide them with the service. Now, do you believe that you will ever go back to the way things were before, or do you think that this new way of operating is here to stay? I, I, I think what, what COVID-19 has done is accelerated change. I don't think we will change the way we operate our service per se, but I think uh, we will make more use of video conferencing uh, with our clients in the future. But we still need to see people because... Um, when you're discussing a business and what a business needs to do, it's very much, it's very important that you're there face-to-face with the person you're actually discussing it with. Uh, so you get a feel for each other as to the points that are being made, made and discussions that are taking place. I, you, you can do it to a certain extent with video conferencing, but when you're having sort of difficult discussions about where business needs to go in the future, it's much better to do these things face-to-face. Well, we should move on to the subject of leadership. I always like to start this part of the conversation off by asking the same simple question. What does the word leader mean to you? It's showing uh, how everybody else in the company or business should operate uh, uh, and and to take forward changes in the business in a way that things should operate. And, and so the, the staff have a sense that they know the direction in which the company and everyone is heading. And how would you describe your day-to-day leadership style? Uh, my leadership style is, is probably more by way of example, uh, in the sense that uh, I actually don't just uh, manage the staff. I'm actually there visiting clients as well, so they can see from the way that I'm working that they've got a good example to follow. And where would you say your leadership style came from? Did you have a particular role model, or were you shaped more by circumstance? 
I think when I personally was working for uh, on farms before I got in, into consultancy and also mm. since I've uh, worked in consultancy, the best people I, I've actually or people I've looked up to in the past are those who actually, in a way, get their hands dirty uh, and actually are actively involved in delivering. Uh, so they're not just there saying, you do this, but they say, this is how you should do it. Um, and I, I felt I've responded much better personally to those types of people over my career over the last 40 years than 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 than, than the, another style of leadership. Now, when we talk about leadership, there are many different models and many different uh, personal ways of, of doing it. Uh, but one thing all leaders have to deal with at one point or the other is conflict. Do you have a particular method of how you resolve conflict? Well, with our clients, we, we often net, we often in situations where the client wants to do something or, or doesn't want to do something and we think that they should do do it. And I've I found that the best way to actually get people to change is to plant seeds. Um, I think if you have a, a process of actually telling people what to do, uh, people actually are more resistant. Once people take ownership of an idea, um, they are, and they and they take, and they then consider it their own opinion or their own idea. They are much more willing to make changes. So it's very much along the lines of basically planting ideas and seeds to get people to change their, their ways of operating, rather than telling them. And when it comes to a point where almost an impasse is is impossible to uh, to come round, what where does that go then? Uh, what sort of actions would you take in that circumstance? Well, uh, th- those sort of situations I've had on a number of occasions in, in, in my career working with clients. And basically, uh, if, if they're not willing to go down the particular route, you just have to explain to them that this is this is nothing personal. This is the situation where we're at or where we're going. And, and these are the outcomes if you don't down, go down a particular route. And, and to just give them accurate and detailed information of what the impact of it is or what they're doing. Um, and I find most people, when you get to that situation, respond fairly sensibly. It's basically being open and honest with people. Hmm. Now, let's talk a bit about leadership on a large scale. If I was to ask you what examples of famous leaders or well-known leaders out there are good examples to follow, uh, what sort of names would you say? Uh, leaders and examples in the past, people I've admired, talking in a, a, in a um, sporting context, I, I think one of the earliest members, uh, uh, Mike Brearley, um, being the cricket captain, I always thought he, he was never the best opening batsman in the world, but his way of managing the England cricket team, particularly during the, I think, believe, the 1981 Ashes, when we had the, the Botham Headingley Test, uh, where uh, Bob Willis took eight wickets, I think, in the second innings to bowl them out, was all about sort of getting the best out of the staff um, out of the players. I, I remember Bob Willis, he bowled him from the wrong end, according to Bob Willis, which basically wound Bob Willis up. So when he actually uh, changed ends that he was bowling at, he actually came in with a fantastic score and took an awful lot of Australian wickets. So I thought Mike Brilly was very good in the way he, he looked at people, understood uh, what made them tick, and actually managed them accordingly. So it's important to understand one's staff to be able to manage them. Is that right? Absolutely, yes. Absolutely, yes. 
Now, unfortunately, our time together isn't unlimited. Uh, but before um, we go, I'd like to uh, talk about a few things with you. Firstly, what does the next 12 months look like uh, for Lawrence Gould? I think it's going to be very challenging uh, for, for the company. Uh, I think it's the, the difficulty we, difficult we have is that we spend a lot of time uh, developing our business by seeing people. And at the moment, obviously, that is more difficult. And uh, if there's a second wave, it's going to become more difficult this winter. So our ways of developing the work are going to have to change uh, if we're going to continue uh, attacking new business. I think that's going to be the biggest the, the biggest issue. Um, in terms of servicing our clients, we have a, a lot of our clients have been with us a long, a long time. And we're... The restrictions allow us. We will make visits to the farms, and and we'll have to change accordingly if basically a second wave comes in as a second lockdown. So we will go along with government policy and try and and work with it as much as we can. And on a larger scale, where is the future of agriculture going? Agricultural agriculture faces its own challenges. Um, Weather is a huge impact, uh, which we've seen in the last 12 months with the the, the, the rains from September through to March, and then we had a massive drought in May and June, which has affected crops this year. Um, there's going to be a huge challenge with, with Brexit uh, next year as to what the impact that's going to have on the markets. Uh, the, the support mechanisms for agriculture is changing, and the new agricultural bill. So there's a considerable amount of change going on within the industry and it's a question of helping our clients guide their way through the myriad of changes for them to make the best use of the assets on their farm and the farming systems they've got to remain in business and prosper for the future. Um, the consumers want uh, value for money in the terms of the food they pay at the supermarket shelf. And basically, there are pressures on the supply chain with you know, rising costs. And farmers have got to look at ways in which they can mitigate those increasing costs and improve yields and quality of product to service their customers better in the future. Well, Keith, I'd like to thank you very much for coming on the program. And, of course, it would be fantastic to have you back on when things calm down a bit out there. Uh, and I do wish you uh, very much well on your recovery from uh, COVID. Um, but, Keith, for now, thank you. Thank you very much. That was Keith Lettington Hill, Managing Director of Lawrence Gould Partnership. And now, if you haven't heard it before, is Jonathan White's exclusive interview with Sir Jeff Hurst. Uh, we're now joined, uh, though, by former England footballer and still the only man to score a hat trick in a World Cup final, Sir Jeff Hurst. Uh, thank you very much for coming on today. Uh, You're welcome. You're welcome. Good afternoon. Uh, and perhaps I should uh, start and get it over and done with. I know you must be bored with it, and uh, you've probably been asked a thousand times. But when you got out for a duck playing for Essex, uh, Jeff, what was going through your head at the time? <laughs> well, of course, that's not one of the most asked questions I get. Although there are one or two people who are very familiar um, who, who do Google me realise that I did uh, score nothing for Essex. Uh, for my only game for Essex first team when we played against Lancashire in Liverpool, a place called uh, uh, Egbert in, in, uh, in Liverpool. Many, many years ago, 1962, I think that was. So I didn't, and, um, yes, I, I didn't really feel it at the time. It was lucky to be <laughs> playing, I guess, with one or two injuries. Um, but the problem that I had was, was really messing about between the two sports. That was very detrimental to me uh, over that period of time, mm. being stuck between the two sports. 
and I think uh, for those that uh, don't know, there's a there's a another world that might exist where um, Sir Jeff Hurst was a, a first class cricketer and not perhaps a, a footballer. But um, whether it's business or cricket or or football, obviously the importance of leadership it can't be understated, no matter what form that comes in. When you were at West Ham, uh, Jeff, and when um, Ron Greenwood first uh, uh, came along, he made obviously some pretty radical changes. Was this a man that genuinely inspired confidence uh, the first time you'd meet him? Absolutely. I mean, he, he was simply a, a fantastic uh, coach or teacher, if you like, at the football. And uh, the, the quite always mentioned when we talk about Ron Greenwood, Harry Redknapp, who was played under him and has been very successful as a player and, and the manager over many, many, many years. He and he's come across many coaches, of course, and managers during his time over years, I guess. He would still say that Ron Greenwood is the best coach he had worked with. He'd worked with. So you're very fortunate. I think you, you think you're lucky when you come across if you have a great teacher at school and a great coach as we had in Ron Greenwood. And of course, a great manager in South Ramsey. So to come across people like that, of that calibre, can have a huge influence on your your career, of course, and, and then your life. And that's that's quite purely the case. Absolutely. And in those early days um, at West Ham, uh, with with a manager like like uh, Ron uh, there, it's also important to have uh, uh, confidence with your other players and of course they become your friends who did you look at to at the time uh, when to inspire confidence in yourself was it more was it Peters I think probably well I was very fortunate to play with the calibre of the players I did again mm. again extremely fortunate to play with you know, the captain um, of England and West Ham and Martin Peters who was a fantastic player and some, as far as Martin's concerned I think sometimes he didn't quite get the uh, recognition he deserved and what a wonderful player he was. In terms of inspiring confidence, I always probably say that the biggest influence uh, for me, I guess, w- would be the captain, Bob Noor. Although he was only uh, about eight months older than me, he graduated through the system probably three or four years earlier. He played for England in 62, four years before the final when I played. And so he, he was more looked upon him more as a senior player, if you like, not as a, a guy with the same age group as me. And I looked at how he how he uh, trained, how he acted, how he behaved, and how he played. And so he he would say, I would also say he was a big influence on me. One thing I would say about leadership, uh, what I do, I do understand clearly in all walks of life, leadership is at the top, is absolutely vital for a, a, for a business football team in any walk of life to be successful and it's quite evident I was in the motor trade for a long time as well selling car warranties to car dealerships and you could almost tell when you walked into the business uh, in a, many of the car dealerships you could almost tell from the moment you walked in by initial reaction people came and welcomed you that the business was well run or conversely not well run at all and so I understand the, the, the value and quality of leadership. And that's why I'm very fortunate to be involved in my career in those early days with two two great leaders in, in Ron Greenwood and, and Alf Ramsey. Absolutely. And um, since you've already uh, brought him up, uh, Jeff, I think it'd be remiss not to go a little bit further with that. But obviously, uh, after uh, or at West Ham, your uh, playing came to the attention of uh, Sir Alf 
Ramsey. Now, there's a man I'm sure when you walked into a room, you knew who was um, in charge. When it came to managing that England team, what was his style like, Jeff? Well, one thing, the first thing I say about Jeff Ramsey, he's probably over my life the most powerful influence who had on me um, as a person. Um, up naturally, it happens to an extent because he's got your whole career in his hand. Whether he picks you for England or he doesn't pick you, it can have a, a great impact on your <laughs> your career and of course your life. But yep. in that era, I was involved for six or seven years. He, it was quite clear who was the boss. He was quite very very strict. Probably at a time, maybe overly strict. But at times, you probably wouldn't get necessarily get away with it in, in today's football because it's changed dramatically in how you deal with with players then and players now. But he was the most powerful man I came across, and very few people. And he, he was quite ruthless in getting people out who he didn't want to be who didn't want to be part of a group, part of a team. It is important that if you've got a group of people, and that's in any walk of life, they're all singing off the same hymn for you, and you don't have anybody that's griping or moaning about the system. And if you've got people like that in the organisation, one thing I have learned, and I've taken on in my life, my family, you've got somebody in a group that doesn't want to be part of it, you, you get them out. And Alf, I think, was was quite ruthless with that in his, in his staff. And I think that's one, thing I, one of the most serious ones I think I've learned over a long period of time. And is there, do you think... Uh a specific moment, I'm sure there's probably dozens, but is there a specific moment, if you could uh, perhaps pick right now, that did show those uh, qualities in uh, Sir Alf so uh, sharply? Yes, I think for, for me, certainly, um, I think there are instances of players who you thought would, would be in the team, or certainly in the squad, and surprising there were not. There was no necessary reason for it, but looking mm. back, I do think perhaps they were people that Alf didn't think wanted to be part of the group. Um, so that that's that's for me. In terms of my personal view, I think that it looked prior to the um, World Cup that I was going to be playing um, in it only a few games before. I was I was playing and I played with Jimmy Greaves in the game against Yugoslavia only a couple of months before the final. And it looked at that stage as if I was going to be be playing in, in the team but uh, in a couple of friendly games more friendly games before the final in Poland and uh, uh, Norway I think in Denmark mm. I didn't I played two of the four games and I probably didn't quite replicate my my form that I'd been showing at West Ham and in the early couple of games for England and he he left me out in the first game of, of the World Cup against uh, Uruguay he started off with Jimmy Green and Roger Allen. So I, I had an impact of thinking I at that stage I, like I was going to play and didn't start because of just a lack of form. I didn't play quite well enough to justify my position. And somewhat fortuitously, I only got back in the team because of a, a nasty gash to shin um, on Jimmy Glee's leg. And I think what you've said there, uh, Jeff, actually does sum that up really well. And more than that, whilst it's important to have that someone in charge with those qualities, it's almost useless if there isn't a strong and unified team behind them. And there really must have been moments, if maybe there weren't, but uh, let us know in that 66 competition, the prolonged pressure on all of you, you know, the weight of a nation, did it get to you? 
Oh, not for me personally, no. I, I think, and I don't, uh, not for me, not for a second. I think mm. I was just happy to be, you know, be involved in the squad initially. Uh, not at all. I didn't, you're not aware of the magnitude of the occasion, really, looking back out. Mm. So I never really felt, people talk about pressure a lot and it's there and people, players talk about people talk about it in life. I didn't really feel necessary to feel any great pressure, pressure during the time I was there. And what is also important to say about Alf Ramsey, the people he, he left behind that were left in the squad after he'd moved one or two players out, the squad were uh, a, a bunch of very hard-nosed, professional, uh, top-quality people. And that was, again, the leadership that Alf showed. He, he got people in together that were very, very strong personally. Um, uh, and I think that was part of the success we had. We were very... I always describe our, our group as hard-nosed professionals. Um, we have some great players, but overall, they were great hard-nosed professional players um, and great quality people who we've kept in contact with, you know, over the years. And Jeff, I've got to ask, and I'm, I'm not making this up, I've genuinely heard that people do ask you whether or not you realised there were people on the pitch at that moment. I imagine you were busy on something else. Well, I... I did some theatre shows last year. They've gone fairly well, and we're going to do a series of uh, theatre shows. In fact, starting this week, over the next uh, two or three months. And uh, at the end of the theatre shows, we have about twenty minutes where we uh, uh, allow the people in the audience to ask questions. And the, the, there's, I won't mention both. They're too long to talk about both questions. Um, one, the other one's a really stupid one. It's too long for me to tell you. It's absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. But the, the the other ridiculous question I get asked, did I realise there were people on the pitch? And of course I jokingly say, yes, I was just about to, to shoot to score the goal and I looked round, put my foot on the ball and looked round for a little while and said, oh dear, there are six or seven people running on the pitch. So that's, uh, I've had been asked that once at one of the theatre shows. <laughs> so I joke, make a joke about that and saying, yes, I put my foot on the ball and waited to just have a, have a glance round, you know. Maybe it does prove there are things that, such as stupid questions, really. Um, oh, yeah, there, are, there certainly are. I've got another one which I won't bore you with. It won't be too long to tell you. Uh, I was in a Jersey or Channel Line, Jersey or Jersey, two or three years ago, and most stupid, irrelevant questions that absolutely nothing to do with football whatsoever, which uh, was absolutely. But I can use that now because it, it is quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe another time then. But we. Um, uh, well, you want me, I, I can tell you if you want. You want you got time? I can tell, I tell you if you want. Jeff, go on, go. On. I think I'd be, it would be silly if I said no at this point. Okay, so I was uh, doing a, a, at a dinner in, in the Channel Lines, three or four hundred people, black tie dinner, uh, guest of honour. Mm-hmm. And this occasion, I was speaking for about twenty minutes, then allowing uh, questions from the audience at the end of the evening, and there was usual football questions. And then all of a sudden, I heard a, somebody at the back who who asked a question. I didn't quite hear what he said. He didn't have the microphone with him. So I said, I didn't hear what he said. Can you please give this chap the microphone so I can hear clearly what he said? So the chap had the mic and he said, when a turtle loses itself, is it naked or is it homeless? Right. <laughs> what, what a question. What a question. Uh, well, I think that would be in, definitely in the stupid category, wouldn't it? So we had a laugh about that. Uh, well, uh, and we, 
you've got to have a patient of a saint, I think, sometimes to come up with <laughs> well, things no, like I that. But found, then again, I found it amusing. I just found it amusing. In fact, some of the audience found it highly amusing as well. So it did. Uh, um, it did but make then again, laugh, if, you put, if you can put up with my questions, you can probably put up with uh, anything. <laughs> um, but there, there would have become a point, though, um, Jeff. I think um, you, you were a young man when. See, this happened when you must have realised that people, teammates, began looking at you for leadership. Um, is that something that occurred to you, or did you just realise that by by quick one way or the other, people actually begin to look up for you for inspiration? Well, possibly. That's never really struck me until you've actually mentioned it. Now, quite frankly, that's a new a new question. Mm. Does anybody look up to me? I'm sure perhaps uh, there are there are people who pay you compliments of, of uh, fans of, of West Ham and uh, of Stoke and of course in, uh, England fans who um, I, I think probably uh, it would be very immodest of me to to suggest that I, I felt that somebody was looking to me for inspiration. Um, well, you, but, you don't but, have to, but I will. Uh, well, um, it's, it's, it's okay for a third party to do it. Uh, perhaps, um, perhaps that may have been the case over the years. Uh, people look at you, and um, uh, maybe uh, it has a uh, helpful effect. Uh, but I do think you, you, how you behave and set examples on and off the pitch, is people must realise that that's, that has an influence. How you react and behave mm. to, to situations on and off the field. Surely, probably has an impact to younger players coming in into the team laterally. Um, yeah, and and with that, looking at um, uh, football today, uh, is there anybody that you think particularly on the field or the sidelines that strikes you as someone with um, those qualities that you could identify in a in a natural leader? Um. Well, the play, current players, you mean? Oh, players, managers, anybody that uh, you look to today, really? Well, I think some of the outstanding. I think the, the, the best example about a, a leader and at the moment is is, is uh, Klopp at Liverpool. Mm. He has been absolutely fantastic to uh, acquire the players and get them to their attitude. is absolutely fantastic. They're great players, but there's more than just being good players in football. It's a good player with a fantastic attitude and their willingness to work for each other and the team is absolutely outstanding. Hence these unbelievable results. There are, you know, and the great players not always succeed as, as individuals or probably even uh, certainly as a team if you haven't got the right attitude alongside it. And they're probably, and that, that comes through the leadership. That's not just luck absolutely. That's, that's absolutely the show he'd be the best example of course in, in football terms today uh, easily easily and of course but going back not that long ago Alex Ferguson who's just absolutely mm. you've got to take him as the first example because Klopp's only done this over a period of time in a short period of time but if you look at the 25 26 27 years that Alex Ferguson did with Manchester United and subsequently since he's gone how they've they are not doing so well. He's the best example of management I've seen. We've seen, we've probably ever seen, and I don't think anybody will see the light of that kind of leadership again. It's absolutely astonishing, astonishing. 
And do you think, could you imagine uh, Sir Alf or even Ron Greenwood managing teams today? Yes, I think so. I think, yes, no, mm. no question at all. I think they, uh, Ron Greenwood, yeah, the, the answer is straightforward. The answer is yes. Um, they, answer. <laughs> the straightforward answer is yes. I can elaborate as much as you want, but the straight answer is absolutely categorically yes. Uh, and with, um, I know uh, if we could talk about this probably for the next hour or so, but um, I'm conscious of the um, time. Um, looking um, back uh, through your um, playing career, perhaps especially um, your time uh, for England, who was it uh, that struck you more than anyone else on the pitch uh, that displayed qualities of not just leadership, but uh, companionship and and level-headedness that you think that have stuck with you all these years later? Well, I think we were, I was very fortunate and I wouldn't pick any one player out. I think looking at that, so many. Yeah, so many. And that's why we were successful because we had so many um, showing all those qualities that you just mentioned uh, throughout the team. I think that that was outstanding and, uh, uh, and it's an opportunity to talk about uh, all of them in, in that breath. And there was nobody, and I've been going back from an earlier earlier question for me, that um, all hard-nosed professionals, good, good teammates, mm. good socially, and that's why we kept in touch with each other on our golf days every year, uh, up until about five years ago, of course, with, with the uh, sadly dwindling yes. numbers. We, we still got on, our wives got on with, all together all those years later. It didn't just finish after 66. It, that reunion, that camaraderie, that team spirit, mm. um, getting on with each other lasted for, for a long, long, long time. And I wouldn't... And- when, it, when you put those, those questions and how you categorise those... I would pick every one of the 11 players um, who you put in that category that were like that. There was nobody else. They were all outstanding. And I think that was a big part. I can't stress how big a part that was. And I've said that many, many times for the success of the team. We had some great players. We had some great players, of course. But without the attitude alongside that, going back to an earlier question, we wouldn't have been as uh, ultimately, ultimately as successful. Exactly. Without that, you, the, the the whole will never be greater than the sum of its parts. But with it, yes, the word, the word is team. Showed. The word is te- the word is team. Absolutely. And I always use the word team when I talk. Sometimes you know, together, everyone achieves more. And that that's the same in any walk of life. That, that's fundamental. And uh, lastly, uh, Jeff, looking if if you were to uh, give advice, and whether this is in sport or business or indeed any other walk of life. What would you identify, if you can, as the key tenant uh, that you can't go without in terms of leading a team, no matter what that team is? Single-mindedness, uh, single-mindedness dedication, dedication to the job. Um, thinking about that, that, that role, that job in leadership all the time. It's a huge part of your life. But if you, I don't think you can switch off. When you're in, in business at the top level or sport at the top level, you may, you know, have a, way, have a couple of weeks holiday. But I'm even sure if, if these top managers and lead, leaders in all walks of life are away on holiday on a beach somewhere warm, I'm sure there's not, uh, there's, they will not switch off for, for two weeks 
um, and completely uh, not think about their role as the boss of an organisation. And I think that's you completely focus. You're always thinking about uh, things, thinking about improvements, and it's just dedication and uh, uh, tuning your life to being successful. Excellent. Well, Jeff, on that point, thank you very much for joining us today. You're welcome. Very good to nice to have a talk about this and just go over this, go over the past and just uh, refresh my mem- my own memory about the quality of the players I grew up with. Excellent. Uh, another time, uh, it would be great to talk again. Thank, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence and leadership with us. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, other guests, or any other person therein associated.